you just look at me? How dare you? My name is Matthew Crow. And as it turns out, I am capable of much unpleasantness. That must come as no surprise to anyone. My name is Shahir Dow. And this is the only podcast about movies, specifically the film The Favorite, with a U. Oh, that is important because there are two films in 2018 called The Favorite. Another one looks to be a boxing film uh, without a U. So this is the the spelling of this is F-A-V-O-U-R-I-T-E, where there's no U in the other one. What the other one? The correct way to spell it. Yes. Uh, apparently, it's a boxing film directed by uh, Curtis Graham. I had not heard uh, the true events of Luke Benjamin Bernard, his spiritual and physical transformation told through the life of two brothers. We're not talking about that. No, no. We're talking about, uh, I think, a, a podcast favorite director of ours, uh, Yargos Lanthimos, uh, who we previously talked about in The Lobster. Uh, and I happened to, uh, it was a film I missed uh, last year and I didn't check out until <laughs> events prevented me from going to see The Favourite, and we can talk about what that was in a second because I feel like it, it ties into everything that we've been doing in sure. the podcast. Uh, but basically, I was heading to the movies a couple of nights ago, and we stopped because a natural event occurred. Not a natural event, an event occurred. Uh, a happening, Primordial forces <laughs> were at play. Yeah, it ex- was with man's meddling that it actually occurred. So much so that I even had to call you for it. That's right. And to it's, declare- good to, it's good to know if you think the world is ending, you give me a call first. Well, you lived close by. So, <laughs> um, but for those who don't know, there was a, a transformer explosion and not the Michael Bay kind. Oh, uh, or there Hasbro goes kind. my bumblebee joke. Um, uh, in Astoria, Queens, which is where both of us live. And it emitted a, an unearthly blue light into the sky. Um, it, which, it looked like something out of the Avengers or any it, alien invasion film. It was an overcast evening. Yeah. So therefore... Uh, the light when it hit. Uh, this is how it. I'm going to paint the picture. You yeah. were walking down the street when this happened, right? Yeah, I was actually hitting to the favorite. Great. I <laughs> so uh, myself, my girlfriend Jamie, and her roommate Elise of um uh, of uh, speaking of Carrie Fame, our sister podcast. Um, the we were watching them for the first time. We were watching Ex Machina. Oh wow! And I shit you not, Shahir. <laughs> the second that the second time that she puts her hand on the inductor plate and knocks the power out, the power flickered in our house, <laughs> and then came back. But then the hum and the blue light—it was like it was daytime out at nine o'clock yeah, at night. Yeah, that's that was the creepy thing. And about we it. were close enough where we heard the hum of it. Right. And so everyone's freaking out, and I, I didn't freak out too much because the power came back. I think if the power had f- gone out and that happened, I'd be like, oh, EMP we're dead yeah um but i have to admit nuclear strike kind of like hovered in the back of my head for an instant so this is this is where we're at as a <laughs> as a society in media yeah. i went towards aliens first in, right. in my subconscious i was like oh fuck mm-hmm. because and again i would have gone nuclear strike if the electricity had gone out because the emp wave would have hit us before the blast wave and we would we'd be all dead very very quickly in queens i love how you can rationalize uh uh nuclear blast but also consider but also believe that an alien well because i i kind of because i'm a i i'm a little bit obsessive compulsive about all the different ways new york city can kill us yeah. um th- if a, if that was a nuclear blast yeah we would be dead so quickly and the grid would be knocked off instantly mm. where the grid was still going so i was like okay what the hell else can make this hum i was like or interdimensional portal and <laughs> and the thing about it is it's because I'm inundated with my media so much, and I've done a little bit of research where, like, even though I'm like, this is ridiculous, I was like, but what if 
if it's not. I think uh, Kevin Feige and the Marvel uh, movies have trained us well to anticipate an alien invasion. Yeah, don't if you see a b- bright blue light that's emanating. The, that's the thing. It wasn't just like a white light. It was it was sort of neon blue and it lit up the entire sky. It was daytime with a blue tint for five minutes, and then when you watched it go out, you're like, because we were outside. We have I have video. Go to my Twitter, Emperor MSK, if you want to take a look at this weird ass. Like you see the contrast because I've yeah. seen a lot of videos of it, but not. It ending. Yeah. And you see it, and we're outside, and we're kind of freaking out, and then it just goes away. And you're yeah. like, uh, 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 so is Thanos done? So with us, we were, as I say, we were walking down the street towards the movies, and then it happened. And uh, what happened was everyone started coming out of their houses. Yep, we were same. walking down a residential street, and everyone started talking to each other and like going, what is this? Are you seeing this? Um, and it was kind of like a communal event. I have to admit, like it would actually, it brought us all together. Um, and, and, it, everything always brings you together until the resources get scarce. Yeah, I know that. It, that is exactly what I was thinking. And then, like Shivali and like, because we'd left our, you know, our child at home uh, with my mother, and so we were like, you know what, we're gonna go home now yeah. and pack our go bags. Yeah. Um, but but uh, the upshot of all of this was that it got me, it gave me an opportunity to watch Killing of a Sacred Deer, which was dope. So there you go. <laughs> <laughs> well, we finished Ex Machina, uh, but always looked at the overloading of the power plant in that particular film much much different yeah there you go uh so that was our weird little experience in queens <laughs> hopefully you enjoyed that <laughs> tangential thing uh it was definitely uh it was one of my favorite times in the city oh there you go favorite with you <laughs> um i want to shout out a couple of things here first off this is an unusual one but uh, and this is entirely as you quoted it earlier entirely masturbatory but we're gonna do it oh uh, which is that uh listener friend of the show jonathan blade uh has a wonderful podcast Podcast called My Handle is Jonathan Blade, uh, which is a good title. Just kind of like the only podcast about movies. Very just direct and to the point. And if you are a blade like Jonathan is, there you go. You need a handle. Yeah. And uh, he did a review session of his favorite podcast of the year, and we were very thrilled to be mentioned in that review podcast as his favorite. Well, no, not his favorite. He was no, he one of. He, we, it wasn't. He he says on the pod roll the tape. He says my favorite of the podcast. Are we really um, gonna are we gonna do this sort of masturbatory? Oh, exercise? we're I'm I'm unzipping. Let's okay. do this. Okay, here we go. But my favorite of my film cast collection is the only podcast about movies. So their shtick is that they are two film industry professionals discussing movies from an aesthete versus the everyman perspective. The energy is great, but the draw is that Shahir and Matt can throw friendly but passionate words over resolute opinions, and it's captivating. But if you enjoy a thing, it's really the two sides of yourself at odds with each other. Can I enjoy this thing because the craft of it is exhilarating to me, or does it need to be layered enough that it invites deconstruction and therefore becomes fractally more intriguing with each analysis? Uh, For film, I'm the everyman, but I enjoy the challenge presented in the deconstruction. I enjoy this cast. Ugh, sorry, I'm just uh, I'm just coming down from that. Oh, uh, Jonathan. Thanks, buddy. We thanks, appreciate man. that. And we uh, want to do a big special shout out to his podcast because that actual review episode turned me on to a lot of podcasts yeah. uh, that I hadn't heard before, a lot of tech podcasts. And I'm not really super into tech podcasts, but he mentioned a few there that I've listened to now and I and I really enjoyed it. I also really like Jonathan Blade's voice. So. Yeah, I was well that's what I was going to say. I didn't know he sounded as as buttery as he did. I know, it's silky smooth. Uh, right? also, thank you for calling us professionals. That's that's <laughs> always a, a pleasant surprise. And also and, and lastly, Jonathan, thank you so much for using one of my favorite words, fractally. Ah, there you go, yes. Um, so that was really nice. Thank you, Jonathan. 
I appreciate that. So, and moving on, we have a couple of other things that I want to uh, call out. Uh, First off, uh, an email from Jamesa, which I cannot read to you. What? uh, Because uh, Jamesa, who's done this before and has actually prompted us to review a movie, and that was the case of The Predator, um, uh, she sent us an email just reviewing... Uh, what was it? If Beale Street could talk and Bird Box, I can't look at these emails. No, uh, um, which it's is kind of which like is ironic the, because the, of Bird Box. Yeah, the character in Bird Box. You people, can't look. people are like, "Oh, it's an origin story to Daredevil." And from what I've heard, no, it's not. It's an origin story from Kenshi from Mortal Kombat. I've also heard it's a remake of The Happening. Okay, uh, which is probably spoiling it too much because I do want to see that film again. Jamesa, thank you for the email. We will get to those films. I'm we're definitely doing if Beale Street could talk. Um, so hopefully we'll do Bird Box as well if we can get it in. We're getting uh, a lot of uh, things from our favorite people. Uh, yeah. For the favorite episode with a U. Another one of our favorite people yeah. who just released their top movie lists of the year is one uh, President Barack Obama. Uh, not my president. No, I'm just kidding. What? <laughs> <laughs> well, technically, you're correct. Yeah, he's not um, my president right now, which is uh, making currently. me really sad. Not, hashtag not my current president. Yeah. Um, uh, so he just released a bunch of films that he really enjoyed, um, and you can check those out. I'm sure you could Google it, but I'll just read some right now. Annihilation, Black Panther, Black Klansman, uh, Blind Spotting, Burning, The Death of Stalin, Ooh. Uh, Eighth Grade, If Beale Street Could Talk, Leave No Trace, Minding the Gap, The Rider, Roma, Shoplifters, Support the Girls, and Won't You Be My Neighbor. So the thing that makes me sad about this list, and he, he released this with his list of favorite songs and favorite uh, books of the year as well. And it, what makes me sad about that is he's reading a lot. He, he seems to be a very busy man, but he has time to read way more books than I do. Um, and uh, the there's a what I like about this list is it prompts me to a few films that we haven't seen this year that I want to see. Um, uh, I really want to see The Rider. Um, hopefully, maybe we can get that in. Before I want to see Minding the Gap. I want to see Support the Girls. Yeah, um, and, and Burning is the other one. For yeah, me. yeah. Uh, so, and uh, I forgot that Death of Stalin was this year. Yeah, Death of Stalin was this year. I, I've been I've been thinking about my top ten list this year, and I've been going back over our 2018 picks, and Death of Stalin was like, ooh. Oh, I like you, like you. Well, uh, we should. Are, are we going to do a best of again? What do you mean? Okay. And what do you What do you mean? We like the thing we've done every year to wrap All out right. every every All right. year so of the podcast. Is that going to be next week? No, I think I remember last year we uh, your your podcast memory is, is starting to trouble me. Uh, we we extended it out because we wanted to make sure we got in some 2018 films that we'd missed. And we pushed it out into the into 2019 just to make sure that we had fully reviewed the films that would appear on the list because as as our list can only include the films we reviewed, not right. the films we've so seen. So wait, you're saying we're doing a podcast? Yeah, um, yeah. You know, I mean, you've put up pictures on the wall. What uh, is? But where pitch- is this real life? It is, and here's where you can find the Sid podcast at onlymoviepodcast at gmail.com. Notice I'm slowing myself down so I don't like Only rush Movie the... Pod on Twitter if at... you'd like to do that. Yeah, there you go. Also, uh, iTunes reviews. Sorry, we're just getting all this stuff out of the way. We've been getting some nice ones. Then uh, iTunes took away a lot of our reviews, yeah. and then Shahir had to kick down the Apple door and be like, hey, you put those back, and yeah. they're like, "I'm so sorry it happened to everyone." And you're like, "No, you're you're <laughs> focusing on us," and we're and they're like, "No, we're not." But they put them all back, so all of your lovely reviews are back. <laughs> uh, thanks to Shahir laying down the internet law. And as it is going to be the new year this year, I just uh, I wanted to shout out one little thing uh, uh, that is happening, which is that our fellow podcaster Stephen Buja uh, is yes. ending is ending. Yeah, <laughs> I love when things ending ending is ending the Oscar Watch podcast, which is a fan. 
fantastic podcast which looks back at Oscar winners over the over the years. You've been on the podcast a couple of times. Yep. I've been on the podcast a couple of times. Uh, really, lo- and Stephen Buscemi's been on our podcast as well. And I started my whole movie reviewing spiel back at Same Night Movie Review with one Stephen Buscemi. So this is not the end of Stephen Buscemi. No. He is gonna. We we are assured. I'm I'm certain that he will be back in podcast form in some way discussing movies like the mighty podcast Phoenix uh, that he is. And uh, but we but he is uh, drawing Oscar Watch podcast to an end, which is unfortunate. Uh, and we just want to shout out that podcast uh, because there are four more episodes coming up. But there's an entire back catalog of best picture, best foreign film yes. winners, best actor winners, best screenplay winners, uh, all available for you to listen to and to do and to digest and discuss. So, uh, so very sad to hear that go, but. If Please you're hopping us. dimensions yeah. and you want to find another uh, movie, oh podcast, yes, I forgot about that. Uh, then that is that is the one you should check out. Okay, now moving on to the favorite, finally getting there. Yeah. Uh, again, Yargos Lanthimos. Uh, the last time we talked about Yargos Lanthimos, we talked about the Lobster, which uh-huh. I think had one of our most, as Jonathan Blade would put it, passionate discussions. Yes, politely. Of, uh, passionate, passionate discussion. Please go back and listen to that episode because it's. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, it's a trip. It's a road trip. Um, and uh, so this was going to be an interesting one. But you were excited to see this film. Yes. Uh. Um, I like anything that looks... Um, I, I, will, I will use the term for like the trailers and the advertising, effortlessly different. Okay. Um, and this didn't look like they were like trying to be different for different sake. It just looked and like it felt like slightly different than something I'd seen lately. Okay. Um, and uh, I really, really dug that. Um, it's it's kind of taking the historical, um, you know, if, what is it? Um, Great Britain, Ireland, and Scotland, sort of uh, of the, the seven- Tudor period. Yeah, the, yeah, yeah. The the antiquities. I believe it takes place in what seventeen seventeen oh seven. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and sort of. What 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 about the trailer made you say this is going to be different? Well, okay, so you're taking a uh, you're taking a time period where there's a lot of silly frivolousness for the uh, aristocracy, mm-hmm. um, but it's often not actually played for comedy in mm-hmm. a weird way. But also, it looked like it balanced comedy, the 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 ridiculousness of it all, and an actual real darkness of weight to it. Okay. Um, and that's something that I, I mean, I mean, I, I like that about the lobster too. Yeah. That that it took something that was so silly of a concept of like, oh yeah, you become the animal, like whatever, and then like just played it totally straight and like continued down the road that it was doing, even if I didn't, you know, love the ending. Um, this one, uh, and also it ha- this has a lot of my sort of uh, some favorites of mine in mm. in the actual film. Obviously, Rachel Wise, um, uh, you know Emma Stone, and Nicholas Holt, one of my favorites, um, who showed up in this, and actually I thought was very very kind of awesome in his own right. And of course, uh, Olivia Coleman playing playing Queen Anne. I just thought the performances, even in the in the trailer, in the trailer, it's funny because there was a lot of acting going on behind words. If okay. that makes sense, <laughs> and you could you could no, sometimes that's a slow burn, and you need to actually see the film to sort of like really understand that. But I was like, oh, there's going to be a lot of like layers upon layers of what these characters are thinking behind what they're saying, behind what they're doing. And is uh, that something you don't normally see in a trailer? I would argue yes. Okay. Um, that a lot of times this is just a <laughs> pure opinion, but a lot of times trailers are built to either entice or intrigue or or wow right or those sort of things and very rare i think i think uh intriguing an intriguing trailer based on sort of dialogue and the way that dialogue is handled is probably one of the hardest to do mm-hmm. 
Uh, and I think a lot of trailers try, especially for like mysteries or like murders or like, you know, things like that. And sometimes it works. Oftentimes it doesn't. Then I'm just like, OK, well, we'll see. And oftentimes the movies are better than the trailers. I thought this trailer particularly uh, pulled me in. Um, so it was the trailer that, that got you in. It wasn't, yeah. it wasn't the thought there was Yagos Lanthimos. I didn't know it was him, yeah. the him until I saw the trailer. OK. Um, and then I was like, oh, so that was like the final like, haha, I'm definitely going to go see this. OK. Um. Also, for whatever reason, and this is this is a this is a weird statement. Mm-hmm. The the font and the the text treatment <laughs> in this film it's nice, right? Uh, it is nice, but it's the kind that I normally hate. Okay, it's basically the spacing of like small worded letters. So like the word the is just as spaced out as the word favorite, mm-hmm. and that's throughout the entire thing. And it's in the trailer and like whatever. And normally, I'm just like when I see that kind of style, it's something that never. It, it always leaves a bad taste in my mouth, but mm. by the time I was done with the trailer, I was so enamored. I was like, oh, this makes sense. Cool. Like, and if a if a trailer or a film can take an aesthetic that I inherently, for probably no reason, dislike <laughs> and make me be cool with it or even like, yep, this is used correctly, then I know it's doing something well under the hood. Okay. What, what, how would you, what, what about the way it's used in this particular trailer or even the actual film itself? worked for you uh i think i mean particularly the way that okay so the trailer basically uh, this is i mean incredibly minor spoilers for the trailer at this point but it's basically two women vying for the ear or the friendship or the whatever of the queen yeah uh who herself has a, a bunch of different um you know physical um ailments along with some mental ailments uh, and so they're kind of like, you know, as I'm sure aristocracy did back in the day and probably still does today, uh, taking advantage of people's um, needs, gullibilities, problems, etc., to sort of like be the worm tongue, if you will, uh, and actually be the power behind the power. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the having this seem like a small story about two people vying for the sort of to be the quote favorite um that sort of like eventually spreads them apart from one another because they're cousins in the film mm-hmm. um the the spacing of the text seemed to make sense because the entirety of this story is just basically uh, you know as the movie goes on the, the distances between folks seems to be very apparent yeah um and so it, it all tied in thematically it's funny because when i watched the trailer i didn't know that yeah, but I felt it a little bit, and then like I think the feeling that the trailer was giving, both through the these the very deliberate and great choices in very small moments that we were given in the trailer, plus the editing of the trailer, I thought was very good. It's it, it basically knowing your tone, being it graphically or pacing or acting, and like matching it perfectly throughout your the thing you're creating um and i and and i'm specifically talking about the trailer in the film i have one or two issues about it as a full film but and in trailer form uh i was like this is like a cohesive piece of something that they know what they are doing and then when the lobster hit as again with my problems with the end of the lobster i loved it until the end and when i thought the end of the lobster we don't have to get into this but just as a refresher for people i thought it was a bit of a of a of a, a kind of a cop out or just sort of a non ending which we've talked about before uh i was like the feeling that this trailer gave me made me feel like that would not be the case. That that feeling would not creep in on me. Okay. And then so you add that to me really liking the lobster otherwise, then I got excited. Okay. So that's basically where I was at. What about you? You don't watch trailers, obviously. I didn't watch the trailer. This I just I Yagas Lanthimos is someone I I 
you know, think is a, is a really uh, interesting voice in film. Yeah. Uh, someone who I want to see more films of. Uh, and then, um, so, I, you know, and I think films about antiquities, about the Tudor period, are a bit of a hard sell for me. You know, yeah. it's like they, they tend to feel like they might be stuffy period, period dramas. Um, so I was sort of, I was a little bit hesitant, but I had, you know, again, I, I just, you know, like glanced at the top 10 list of the year from many people and it was on there many, many times. And yeah. I was like, okay, yeah, cool. I'm going to see that. Cause I also like that filmmaker. Um, I think the thing that, uh, I was intrigued by with this film and well, let's, you know, you, you've kind of given a synopsis already, but let's just talk about what, uh, how we responded to the film. And I think the thing that I, you know, I will just say flat out, I love the film. Um, pretty unabashedly as well. And the night before I watched uh, Killing of a Sacred Deer, which is his previous film, which I just, again, I love. Mm. love. Now, I think that film is really challenging and difficult and hard to... Hard. It, it's not for everyone. It, just as much as I think the lobster is not for everyone, just as much as I think uh, Dogtooth is not for everyone. Um, but uh, this is probably Yagos Lanthimos' most accessible film. It yeah. Is, it is. It is. You know. But it still contains the things that I think he, as a filmmaker, is interested in, which is um, the thing that he seems to be obsessed by, or that follows his 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 work, is hermetically sealed uh, communities that have their own forms of language, their own their own uh, ways of orientating themselves that are entirely unique and oftentimes go against the grain of like what we expect in common society. Yeah. And I think that's, that's, uh, that's a, a strong thread through everything he's done, and it's a strong thread through this film. Yet this film is the most accessible because it is touching on a historical period that we all kind of know. Like in, in the case of The Lobster, it's a fantastical dystopia. In the case of Killing is a Sacred Deer, it's sort of a, a, a David Lynchian sort of version of suburbia. Dogtooth is almost the same thing. Those are worlds that we don't really often get access to. Yeah. But this is a world that we've seen a lot in film. And I think one of the things I wanted to think about in this film was that on this podcast, we have done a number of historical films. And, and you know, I'm thinking back to First Man, The Death of Stalin even this year, I, Tanya, The Post, Detroit, Dunkirk, Barry, Deepwater Horizon, Spotlight. That's another fun conversation <laughs> to listen to. Um but one of the things that we've come up against in terms of historical films is where does the line between uh, our understanding of how history played out versus the interpretation of, of historical fact in these movies, where does that line get drawn in terms of our appreciation of the film? You know, like in the case of, um, say, Detroit, for example, mm -hmm. you know, we, we asked the question, I think, thinking back about Detroit, it was like, whose story is this film? Right. You know, like, where does, who, who gets to tell this story and how do they get to interpret it and tell it? You know, because that was a film that focused very heavily on uh, a villain. Uh, I guess, you know, you would argue a villain character. Right. Whereas another filmmaker may have made it about the uh, about the victims of that, uh, of that event. Um, but then, you know, a film like uh, The Death of Stalin, for example, uh, you know, completely subverts our expectation of historical understanding by taking a look at uh, Russian uh, history, but does it from you know English actors speaking English in, a, in an entirely absurdist comedic way. Yeah. Um, and so the the thing that I was thinking about with this film is the way in which it plays with history, and I think the most successful thing about this film that actually just unlocked me to enjoy it without ever having to consider that question was the fact that it doesn't have based on a true story. Even though, right, a lot of this is based in historical fact, but they never go out of their way to state that, and the film kind of openly. I, I think because of that, and because of the level of absurdity it gets into, never 
has to get you to think about like, oh, is this actually how it played out? Yeah, because I went back and I researched it a little yeah. bit, and I was like, oh, like yeah. the the you know the, the queen Queen Anne was there, had the same sort of problems that this Queen Anne has. Uh, there was also uh, the two women were actual people in the Queen's life. Yeah. Um, now the the relationship is debated depending on what you you know that they they go back and forth as you know things that are sort of kept under a rug in history tend to be. I've learned a lot of that basically working on Extra History with uh, Robert Rath, who is very excited, a uh, writer on Extra History, who uh, wanted to be on this episode but could not see it in time. Yeah. Um, I would be very curious about his interpretation of the way this plays with history. Maybe I can get him to just write us an email once he sees it because yeah. he, he's he's a phenomenal um, historian and and I was curious what his thoughts would be. Yeah. But um. But yeah, I, I did a little bit of a deep dive because I didn't I didn't know this particular part of yeah. of um the history of Great Britain, and uh the, the, it's it's interesting that they didn't choose to do that sort of based on a true story because I think that's an apt thing by the director or the marketing team at least because they knew that that's not the point. Yeah. Uh, and and I think it's important to know your film's point. <laughs> you're stating a, you you're stating a lot of things that seem to be obvious, like make a good trailer and you know know your film's point. <laughs> well, okay, but but honestly, yeah, like yeah, that's those are simple things. A lot of films don't do that, right? Uh, and and I you know, look, uh, maybe we're at a time where that's sort of important, like. It, it, you know, baking, you want to make sure you actually have good ingredients and you're not just putting in garb. Like, you need to know the basics before you can continue on to be, to go towards excellence. So I, I dug up a couple of interesting things, uh, you know, thinking about this question. Now, I want to I specifically talk about the detail of the film uh, after we get through this kind of historical hump um, first. But the, <laughs> the reason why I think this is an interesting question is that, uh, and I found this article that was in Variety of, uh, a little while back, which referred to a study from Jeffrey Sachs, a, professor, a psychology professor from Washington U., um, who probed the phenomenon of people believing films more than historical fact. Yeah. So the, the contention there was that, uh, uh, I think it was, uh, I can't find this, it, it, the students, ex students would accept a, a movie version of history 30% more, 30% of the time while knowing the historical fact. So if uh, what the study did was give students uh, basically a, a study, uh, you know, information on a historical period sure. and then show them the film version of that, which was historically inaccurate or contradicted the information that they had or had been previously given as fact. And in 30% of the cases, most students who knew the history would actually believe the film version over. And and in and what the the assumption, the extrapolation that they made is for people who don't have historical information um, at their fingertips would more than likely believe the film film's versions of history uh, over historical fact most of the time. Are you saying <laughs> that he proved that human beings can be subject to propaganda? Well, I think the exact phrase that he used is, <laughs> our minds are not well equipped to sort good sources from bad ones. They are not. Um, and so, uh, and I think I think that's an interesting interesting framework to go into this film. Now, uh, the thing that I, I, I think I've tried to make a point about, or I think we've talked about on this podcast, is that I don't care if a film is historically inaccurate. I want a film to make, uh, uh, to have a clear line about what it wants to say. But the problem that occurs is when films purport to be historically 
absolute and then deviate from that. You know, so, so for example, the film Argo, uh, the Ben Affleck film that won Best Picture yeah. many years ago, ends, you know, very sort of confidently with images of the real people versus the actors that they had play, played in the film to, in a way to kind of like illustrate how, uh, even though this was an absurd story, it really did happen. Yeah. The fact of the matter is a lot of what happened in Argo is made up and made up in a way which contradicts what that film is trying to say. Um, and I think that, for me, is where the, the issue lies. Is again, I don't really mind if you are historically inaccurate. What I mind is when you are trying to make a point and your point gets undermined by being historically inaccurate. I think the phrase, based on a true story or based on actual events, is a weird sort of advertising stopgap where technically it's not lying yeah. because you use the word based on. Yeah. Uh, because, but then... but. To be honest, you could throw that in the same context that marketing companies throw that line or those lines onto advertisements for films. You could throw that onto any film. Yeah. And it would have the same amount of, uh, not to quote Stephen Colbert, but truthiness yeah. um, that it does in these other films. So I, I totally agree with you when 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 a film is touting itself or, or making a large point that it, it, like the reason why the things it's showing you is important is because it's it's historically accurate and it really happened. Yeah. Uh, and it's not. That's a problem. Yeah, and I and and so you know I, I was reading quotes from uh, interviews with Yagos Lanthimos, and and one of the things he did, you know, like right outlined is some of the things in this film are accurate and a lot aren't, you know, and so he's very very much acknowledging yeah. the historical, you know, like like what he wants to do with this film is take a point in history and look at it from the storytelling point of view that he wants to yeah. tell. Um, and I think that that is a to me is the the purest form you can the purest thing you can do as a filmmaker. It got me thinking about a couple of things uh, historically. You know, there's obviously revisionist history films like Inglorious Bastards, which yep. are like completely, you know, has fun with the idea of history. The, oddly, the death of Stalin is is very historically accurate while looking and feeling like it's not. Yeah. Um, that's kind of a crazy thing as well. And, and, and then I was having a conversation with a friend about uh, Peter Jackson uh, this week, and we got into like a lot of the films that he tried to make and didn't get, didn't get made. And one of them was uh, a movie by the name of Dam Busters, which is a remake of a World War II film about the great British Dam Busters who used this sort of special bomb... Um, to break down a, a German barrier or something like that. Okay. And the issue that that film had, um, this is a really curious case where they, you know, the, 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 the earlier film was very popular. Peter Jackson loved that film and wanted to do a remake of it. He'd hired Stephen Fry, the writer, to write it, who, you know, was historically very well-versed, came to New Zealand to, to write that film. Sure. And the, the interesting thing that happened is that there's a central character in that film in that film and in the real world, who had a pet dog. And the dog's name was a derogatory term for African-American people, starting with the letter N. Okay. And that phrase was used as one of the Operation Bombing Points. And that is historical fact. Yeah. But what Peter Jackson discovered, or you know, like basically learned as people were kind of figuring this out, was that you can't make that film in 2015 or 2010 when he wanted to make it. Basically having the hero of your film... Or, or or you're you're in a sort of a, you're in a quandary about that because basically you're going to release a mainstream big blockbuster film where the main character walks around calling his dog the N word, a white man calling his dog the N word, but that is historically accurate. So you're in a sort of a weird quandary, and I think what that points to is that historical f interpretations are a reflection of the time that they are made in. Sure, but also 
just changed the dog name. But that would be historically inaccurate. Who gives a shit? Well, I think people who are interested in history would, because that sure, was the name. Sure, then make a documentary. I'm saying, if you, look, no no narrative film, no matter how based on true events, is going to be as accurate as what actually happened in the real world. Right. Therefore, if you want to tell that story, change the dog's name. And then when you, when you do your interviews and you do all that shit, you can do, honestly, what we do on Extra History and do a Lies episode and just be like, look, yeah, we changed this because we don't want to do this, but the story itself is super interesting. And, uh, I, I, again, I don't know the particulars of that, yeah. of that uh, moment in history, but as long as the actual name of it doesn't have a pure, like, changing the narrative of the thing itself, which it doesn't sound like, even if it's a code name for a bombing operation in the name of a dog, you could change that to be Mordor. And then, it, it, who gives a shit? Like, you're, you, it's, that's, that's, when it, when historical accuracy gets to that point, and you're like, well, can't do it. It's like, well, then maybe you should be making a documentary and not actually. Well, this year, Peter Jackson did make a documentary about, um, about World War One. Right. You know, this, this, they will not grow old. Yeah. I will say, I think the thing is there is that they ran into something that they just hadn't considered, which is that, which was that the, pol- you know, like basically. How do you not consider that? Well, I mean, <laughs> Well, if you're the 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 answer is is if you don't have people of color in the room sure. when you're writing Forest that film, through the trees and yeah, yeah, that that's that's what might happen. So I think that's an interesting thing. But but that's all to say, it, coming back to the favorite, is that I think the way to think about it is historical interpretations are a reflection of the time that they are released in. So this film, uh, which which is not historically accurate, uh, but doesn't igno- you know doesn't make a point about it. Uh, omits cert- a, a lot of details, but but this film kind of feels entirely 2018. It's a film about women in power vying for the power, you know, vying for people around them, and men are insignificant in that in that power ba- vacuum. It it feels you, you are correct, but also I think it's important that we remember that that. It feels 2018 because of where we're living right now, but it also feels very 1700s because that was also the time then. And that's and that's the point is that we look when we look back in history, we're, we're looking picking stories that that mimic our feelings that, currently that, that matter for our context. Which is why I think the Dan Buster story is interesting because that political the the context didn't match where we are today. And I think that would have been a difficult thing for that film. No, so here's I'm gonna have to disagree with you on that because so the the context of the of say the favorite women in power. Let's just use that as yeah. as the, that's what we're calling the context. Makes 100 percent sense that the two time periods sort of match up in that particular way. Um, the Dam Busters thing is literally nomenclature that is now offensive. It has nothing to do with the actual story that the that they're trying I to think tell. The, I, I, I'm maybe not characterizing it as important, but that name is very significant to the story. I guess I, 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 I can't in my head currently figure out a way narratively where that is true. If it is, then that's a different story that I can't even speak to right now because I'm not familiar enough with right. it. Right. I, I, I will say, yeah, because I because I you know I asked the same question. Why can't they just change the name? The dog is significant to the story. The dog and and that name is significant to that story. But for instance, unless it literally has to do with racism itself, unless the name in about the operation and the dog have to do with uh, actual racism or derogatory terminology, etc., they could change it as long as they changed it consistently, and it would still have the same narrative punch. And I'm trying to figure out a way. Would you be then 
concealing the the inherent racism no, of the characters. Because you literally talk about it. You you literally talk about it on the press tour, and you could be like, "Look, this is." But this it's is not it. in the film. If it's not in the film, then you're omitting it from the film. You could say it in the beginning. You could mm-hmm. say like, uh, "Specific names were changed due to the fact that this, you know, while we tried to be historically accurate here, there, and the other thing." Right. And then people, you know, people would argue then that you are you're rewriting history, which I think. But you're like, admi- you're admitting to rewriting history, and if people want or really really need to, like, there's there's again, I've said this before about films or really any media right is as long as it does l- more good than harm right I, how do you quantify that uh i would say telling if you have to tell the story right and you you the, there's a specific thing that does not affect the actual uh feeling or the narrative behind the thing you can you can get across that this dude's a racist without just casually dropping the n-word every other sentence when he's talking to his dog there's ways you can do it you can get the just like the way all of his like a lot of historical films do you can get the feeling of the time across while still changing some small details right um so that's literally what I- uh, okay. what movie Again, making is I, I don't think I quantify I, I kind of gave you the estimation of how important this was are you was. setting me up to fail no no I, <laughs> I just, I'm, I'm, you, you seem to have a very definitive answer to this but this actually stopped this movie didn't it's right a Peter Jackson film at coming off the height of Lord of the Rings and King Kong. And now this had... movie stopped and did in its track because of this issue. So, do we have Mortal Engines? Uh, do we have this film yeah, to actually, blame yes, for Mortal Engines? We do because it, it was uh, this was a film that Peter Jackson was going to produce and Christian Rivers was going to direct, and they'd stopped because of this issue. And Mortal Engines was the film that came out. Wow. So, so it's just just something interesting to note there. And I think you know, like again, uh, the issue here here for this film, uh, although the, the screenplay for this film was written in 1998, it didn't get made until 2018, and and a couple of interesting stories from Deborah, uh, the writer, uh, uh, Deborah Davis, yep. was that uh, distributors were worried that there weren't enough men in this film, <laughs> or distributors were worried that there weren't enough key male roles in this film. And in fact, one of the things that you know is really interesting is that uh, King George, who was Queen Anne's husband, was alive during this period, um, but is, uh, is entirely omitted from this film. And I think that is a reflection of how this film is very much of its time today. And I think it is it is it is stronger for that reason. Sure, King George. If King George is alive, oh, okay, yeah, yeah. Sorry, I was just sort of piecing it together. But you're right. It's because it's not about that. I mean, yeah, it's not about that at all. It's about the 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 triangle between these three women. Yeah. Um, that gets formed. Um, in in, I guess he did pass away kind of relatively soon after this. But yeah. but it's it you know like to include him sort of adds a a sort of monstrous power you know power. Uh, not vacuum, but what's the opposite of that? Con. Well, but the queen was still in command at this point. In historical terms, I don't believe she was. No. Yeah, I. I, I well, think... she's dealing with she. She was in this film anyway. And again, mm. revisionist, and maybe I'll have to ask Rob about this. But yeah. the the she was making military decisions. Yeah. In in this in film, this and, and I think in in real historical terms, she might not have been. She may have been halfway during this period. Right. Because he passed away, and he might have been ill. But, during that period. Oh, but yeah. It, so in this telling, he could have already been dead. It, they don't they don't address it in the film, but that could be. But he's entirely dead in yeah, this yeah, film yeah. during yeah. during this period. So I think that's really interesting. Um, just just thinking about the historical context of this film before we even go into it, just like where does this film sit? And I and I think that's an interesting sort of just framework to to sort of consider the film. Yeah. Uh, anyone who's listening, onlymoviepodcast at gmail.com, If you know the actual sort of you know, if you've done more research than we have, and you're yeah. listening to this and being like, why aren't you saying this thing about that? Like, email us in, let us know. We'd love to. We'd love to know more. Yeah. 
regardless of that, I, again, as I said up front, I absolutely love this film because I think it's this, this wonderful power triangle between these three, you know, incredible, incredible performances. Rachel Weisz, uh, Emmett, is it Emma Stone? Emma yeah. Stone. I was going to say Emma Thomas for some reason. Yeah, you know. <laughs> uh, and, and Olivia Coleman playing the queen. Uh, I think this is just an incredibly tight chessboard of a film where three power players or two power players are basically vying for the affections of this character and then by the time it got to the end of the movie uh it remind i think it it strived for something bigger than that in terms of talking about what that what the 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 goal of power might do to people and i think and i think it was just really wonderful for that and this is why this is probably his most accessible, you know, Yagos Lanthimos' most accessible film. It actually it points to something really concrete that we can uh, that we can grasp onto. Whereas I think his other films are a little bit more abstract in their in, in the way they form ideas. Yeah. Um, so I absolutely loved this film uh, for for basically giving me an opportunity to see a tight chessboard of a game of a of a power play between three characters and i was i was riveted the entire way through it and it does something interesting in its um in the way the story is told and the way that it affects you as a viewer um in the beginning uh, and i think this is a this is a real uh, uh kudos moment uh mm-hmm. because i feel like direction is where this where this um nice thing lies you're rooting the movie wants you to be rooting for Emma Stone in the right. beginning. Yeah. But then uh, a funny thing happens as you're sort of going through you slowly depending on the, your type of personality slowly or quickly you kind of stop rooting for her or the film wants you to stop rooting for her. Yeah. In a weird way. And then you kind of seeing like oh well maybe even all the the you know the negative traits we saw in one character is actually present in both. Yeah, and then the very end of the film, which we can get to eventually, like sort of gives the 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 coup de grave, like this is what we're saying. Yeah, um, and I just I again very rarely do you have that moment work as well and as subtly as this because I basically I started rooting for the other character without realizing I was doing it, and then like I was already doing it, and I was like, wait, I wasn't, I didn't want the what yeah. movie? Yeah, like it was it was very apt and very um. Complexity of storytelling. Complexity right? of storytelling, and and the exact type of cinematics—I'll call it cinematic sleight of hand with the plot, where it, it got me feeling ways I didn't know that I thought of it. If if you told me I was going to switch, it it, it did it without me. It, it made me look one direction while making my feelings go another, and then it took me a second to sort of like get right. I'm like, hey, movie, yeah, you can cut that out. You put my watch back. Um, <laughs> it, it, it did. It did some great uh, film pickpocketing of my emotions. Right. Um, I think you know, like w- the reason it the the reason it does that is that it is a that every action is uh, okay. No, no, actually, I'll frame this another way. Unlike Dogtooth, uh, Killing of a Sacred Deer, or um, or even the Lobster, where characters are 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 kind of put, you know, choose to be in the worlds that they live in. That they inhabit. Uh, that might not be true for Dogtooth, by the way. But the, <laughs> in this film, everyone feels like a victim of circumstance or a victim of the a victim of the place that they they've found themselves in. And one of the most remarkable parts about that was the amount of empathy this film was able to draw from me for Queen Anne. Yeah. Well, she's <laughs> kind of a victim, weirdly. 
she's she's also the the most brutal you know like um user of her power throughout the film but she's in a but 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 the film allows us to understand that she's in a place that, that I don't think she ever wanted to be in and has been and has experienced a lot of trauma in her life which makes this which makes this power uh this the this sort of power throne that she sits upon completely lonely and isolating. So this need to have other people's affections actually really makes sense. And it's a very powerful thing. It, when you see her walking down the hallway screaming, where am I? Where am I? Um, it actually really, you know, like, I, I think, you know, like my my interest in antiquities and the royal court and and, and all that stuff has always been, I, I've been less interested in the power players as much as I'm more interested in the victims of those people. Well, but this film kind of like let me enjoy that. And it's also, it's also um, shocking in a weird way to the, 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 what one might see as similarities to 1704 or whatever mm -hmm. and to uh, 2018 right uh having a leader say who might not be the most mentally stable being yeah. manipulated by forces beyond their control now granted yeah. in this film queen anne is seen as a bit of a um uh, uh, um, a, 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 a sympathetic buffoon. There's yeah. a lot of arrested development that feels yeah. like has gone on through her life, along with her physical and mental uh, issues that have been plaguing her for her entire existence. I mean, just think about and history yeah. has thrown her. And I was just looking at how it, she came to be, and yeah. like so many bad things had to happen to the competent people to get her to be the one in in the being the queen. Yeah, and. It's so funny, and it's kind of the reason why I think um, you can kind of prove that monarchies in classical historical senses don't work, because no matter how great a family is, eventually you're going to have someone who is not suited to lead. Right. Um, leadership is not something that is just going to genetically be passed through everyone. I mean, and it could be based on mental acuity. It could be based on interest. It could be based on physical problems. Like, so also the, the, the vacuum that power creates within a family creates a different kind of person that initially got that power. And if you look at it from this way, there's many people in the court that probably, for instance, wanted Queen Anne to continue being queen because they felt they could manipulate her. Mm. Because if you have someone that has a lot of these maladies or these issues, you can play the game. I mean, there's there's mm. totally a reason why Rachel Weiss's character of um, of Lady Sarah, Sarah, Sarah yeah, yeah. Uh, she she the only reason the uh, Queen Anne is still in power is because of Rachel Weiss's character. Right, she's controlled it. I, I, I this is not sort of stated. No, I'm wait, sort of how, what, what, how because is, because she would have been manipulated into a different way and possible. This is me sort of. Uh, I don't think they could have stopped the queen from being the queen. No, no, no. Right? But but for instance, the queen could have been it could have been manipulated in a different way or or killed or forced out of power or something. I feel like the, the Rachel Vice's character Sarah basically was kind of like a manipulating yet guardian angel. She even in the beginning, you're seeing how she protects and moves things away from her there's a care there but yeah. there's also i'm watching out for myself i'm saying you could have had a less benevolent manipulator do things that might have ended your reign sooner yeah and i think i think that's an interesting line that the film kind of uh or an interesting journey that the film kind of takes you on which is that you at the beginning you do think that rachel weiss is just manipulating as a power hungry person who you know has found themselves in this like p position of privilege yeah um and and but as you as you kind of 
follow the film along, you realize that that she does protect the queen. She does actually like have an affection for this queen. There's a point. I I, I feel like we've gotten pretty far without doing a lot of spoilers. And yeah. I don't think we have to. Yeah. Um. So there's a point. I, I do want to talk about the very very ending, which is fine. Which you yeah. you can, and I don't think that'll spoil too much, especially sort of well specific twist points. I guess yeah. there's a point where Sarah um threatens a thing and then d basically. Uh, destroys her ability to actually go through with that threat, yeah. and you can tell it's because she actually does care about the queen. I think she cares. About, yeah, I agree. I agree. That is a that was a point where I was like, you know, like I kind of oftentimes I throw my hands up in movies, and like this character had this like power play, which is that she could, um, you know, uh, yeah. affect change to the or, or harm this person, and then she like burns the letters. Yeah. And I was like, oh, why would you do that? Now, spoiler. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, we're we're in spoilers now. All right, I was trying to keep it clean, but she just wants to go dirty. Yeah, I want to I want to go full spoilers at this point. You know, there's shit in the mud. There is shit in the mud. Well, that's what people do around these parts. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I I loved uh, that 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 you do change your affection some way, and you see this character whom we kind of love at the beginning, Abigail. You know, like perhaps you should play an animal, you know, a monster for my kids or something like that. And she goes, ah, you yeah. know, you kind of just you're endeared to her. And she's played by Emma Stone, who is an endearing, you know, an endearing performer on screen. And then slowly through the course of the film, that endearment kind of gets shifted away uh, as we realize how how much she is capable of doing. You know, and I think my quote from the beginning is I'm I'm capable of much unpleasantness is really true. But you also understand, you know, there's a line in the middle of the film where she says, you can't get me now, I'm safe. And that line is really key because she is safe and she's safe from the kinds of harms that she was trying to get away from, which are really devastating. You know, like she was raped, you know, many, many times uh, to get to this point. She was Her father lost her in a card game. Yeah, yeah. You know, and she was... She, she, you know, she's sleeping on a mattress and she was, you know, uh, uh, sleeping in a room full of other maids who are also equally uh, affected by the, the, the well, you know, the inequality of the system that they lived in. Um, and, and when she says she's safe, she really means it, you know, like I'm safe now. And you entirely understand the need to maintain the level of vitriol and the level of sort of uh, unpleasantnessness that she needs to do right. in order to like maintain this position. It's it is quite wonderful to kind of, uh, to me. I love that kind of evolution of character where you know someone that we thought we might have liked, you know, becomes someone that we somewhat loathe by the end of the film. Um, and I think and it, or or we come to understand someone that we may have loathed if we just started at this point. Yes. I think, now this is where I'll get into a, a minor problem I had with the film. Yeah. And again, I think we've very much covered that we both really enjoyed this movie. But if we're going to be critical of some stuff, um, there's a moment after um, uh, Emma Stone's Anne uh, sort of, I'll, I'll call it wins yeah. for, for the time she, being. Where she says. Yeah. yeah. Um, where it shows her at a party um, just shit-faced and being frivolous. Mm-hmm. While I do think that it, that that moment was the only moment in the film that threw me out of it ever so slightly, and I and I and I got back into it after sort of thinking about the end, like basically when that moment happened, it was such a brash difference of her character mm -hmm. in a weird way that I was like, huh? And what, what was about it that you? Didn't... Because we'd never seen her out of control. She had always had a certain amount of control. And now, of course, it makes sense because the, with and we'll get to the very, very end. But the, before getting to the very, very end and seeing that, and she, you're like, oh well, she's now thinks she's totally fine, so she can just let loose. Yeah. And the way it, it was a bit of a jarring moment because I'd never seen that character do that, and I was like, 
it was right before that moment that I realized I was actually rooting for Sarah. But, and and but, hold on, let me let me okay. finish my thing. Um, and so then when it instantly switched to Anne being sort of like a drunken Abigail, Abigail oh, I yeah. keep calling her Anne. I'm sorry, yeah. Abigail being a, a a drunken kind of uh, fop. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I was like. I was already impressed with the sleight of hand the movie did, and then it was the movie punching me in the face with it a little bit. Now, granted, I think it it works because of the ending. Right. Uh, but at that particular moment, it was the only time where I was like, huh, okay, movie, I guess we could, you know, keep hitting this. Uh, and again, what, what, what were they keep hitting? Uh, the fact that, like, she's safe, she's won, and now she's going to just be like a, a an, an asshole. Right. Um, beca- I- before she was at least. Being uh, she, the only but, time, but isn't that the, but the transformation? She was only, yes, but she was only being an asshole to get power, and now mm. she's just being an asshole because she's an asshole, right? Uh, and and I had already sort of clicked that in my head, and then the movie showed it to me again. It's like the movie did such a good job setting it up that when it showed me it, I was just sort of like, okay, it felt like a, a, a small redundancy. Again, this is just mm. what's going through my head mm-hmm. when okay. I when I saw it. Okay. But then, uh, as I know, you do want to get to the ending, yeah. Do you want to talk about that first? Because I've just been rambling for a minute, and then we can sort of go through. Well, I just, I guess, you know, <laughs> it's funny because I saw this with my wife, and she was like, oh, this, she was like, I knew when this movie started, this was going to have one of those non-ending movies, you know, non-ending endings. And I was like, oh, what do you mean? I thought the ending was was wonderful. And, like, it was interesting because we had completely different sort of interpretations oh. of what happened at the end. I thought this had an ending. Yeah, I think that I, I'm kind of on that on that side where I, I kind of firmly believe that this film ended. But it it sort of ends on a on a sort of odd note. Your uh, wife went full lobster for she, me. Yeah, she did. Yeah, she did. Um, but you know, like once we talked it through, she kind of she 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 seemed to you know ch- change her mind about right. it. But uh, I think the ending for me was just this amazing. It pointed to one thing that this film was really clever at that you never ever felt uh, during, or you never consciously felt during the film, which is that this film uses its visual cues really effectively and never ever like points them out um, highly, even though it's doing extraordinary things. Like they they use this six millimeter lens in this film, which is this ultra wide lens, which which basically uh, makes the horizon curve, Uh, and so you get these like incredible wide shots where. where you know, like you get this sort of optical distortion around the sides, and it basically feels like a globe. And the other thing that it does is it it makes the characters really small within the worlds that they live in. Right. Um, so it's an incredible visual cue that this film does. That that's also kind of it's a strange thing because uh, that optical distortion that you get with ultra wide lenses is some. It's kind of like. Um, Something you would avoid in most films. You yeah. would never really like, but this film like really leans into they it. They lead real hard into the snow globiness of it in yeah, a weird and way. Yeah, and also like using, moving the camera with that lens yeah. is like, is a real like, you're, you're drawing attention to the fact that you're watching this world through a lens. Yeah. Um, but they, they lean into it really hard. And what's amazing about it is the final, the ending of the film is purely visual. You know, like the the where this film kind of ends up is an entirely visual metaphor, and it's wonderful. So the way I watched it was like, okay, so Queen Anne, um, so Abigail is basically, as you said, you know, like in full complete control. Uh, now she is the privy, the privy to the purse, I think is what it's called. Is is you know she's in charge of the budget. She's sitting there sipping, sipping champagne. She's not in charge of the budget. Uh, that's that was her role. She's privy to the to the the privy. Pri- 
privy to the purse. Oh. And that's why she she was able to call out uh, Sarah's embezzlement oh, of money. You know, she that. was looking at the budget, which is what uh, which is what Sarah used to do at the beginning of the film. That was yeah. her role. Gotcha. Um, so uh, you know, she's entirely in control, and then she kind of out of I guess out of playful cur- cruelty steps on this on this rabbit Ooh. you know which is like yeah it, it's a real like oh my god you know like how how far have we fallen and i think i'm not certain if Anne hears that squeal or just kind of chooses this moment to like I think put, she did put abigail in her place yeah and what's amazing about it is that the 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 visual cue here is that uh, you know, she says, rub my legs, which is, of course, in, in code uh, nomenclature for this film is, you know, bring me to orgasm. Yeah. And then she says, you know, like, I can't stand. I'm going to I need something to hold on to. And she grabs her head very forcefully. And we hear this kind of like pitter. We hear some kind of noise off screen as Abigail kind of comes to a realization that the power that she thought she had isn't actually the power that she thought she had and that and that the queen is still the queen and no matter how you know like diseased she becomes how ill she becomes how deformed she becomes she will still hold her place in power and as that sound kind of grows louder and louder i i wasn't certain what that sound was i thought like for for me i was i thought it was like at the beginning i thought it was someone like tightening a leather belt or oh, something no. No, no, and no. then as like I kind of like, you know, as the film kind of layers the visuals on top of each other, we realize it's the rabbits petter pattering around. Listen. And we realize that Abigail is kind of a, is one of these rabbits now. She is a, a plaything of the queen. Um, Bunnies aren't just cute like everybody supposes. It's, in, it's an extraordinary thing because that visual metaphor of the rabbits has transformed throughout the course of the film. You know, initially there was sort of like a form of therapy for the queen who views them as her child. Uh, as like yeah, you know, as a, as they a were replacement of, for every one of her seventeen, every one of her children, seventeen children. Basically. But then, as we get to the end of the film, we realize they're not—they're not just the replacement; they're also the playthings of the queen, and they are kind of trapped by the queen as Abigail is. Now. Listen, listen, this is true of anything, and I think this is a this is an, an older person's realization. You're never free. <laughs> <laughs> you 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 may have uh, uh you may feel like you're trapped in a cage of your own socioeconomic status or family ties or whatever it is but and you can get more comfortable there's no question but you will always have a bit of a cage and just the style and size of that cage can change uh, the bunnies themselves uh, are a great representation of this and sort of the end. And I, I kind of knew the pitter patter right away because I grew up with rabbits. We right. had a we had yeah. a, a few pets, yeah. Uh, and so that was a sound I was familiar with. But um, you know, it's it literally how the queen pins her the same way that she just pinned the rabbit, and you're like, oh yeah, yeah. Um, and and Anne realizes in that moment that she's not free. She has Abigail. Uh, uh, man, I'm so sorry. Yeah. Uh, Abigail realizes that she's not free. Um. And and the the style and or guildness of the cage has now changed. And so so here's where here's where Abigail sits at the end of this film. Thought she was super in power, then she realizes, well, she's not because, the, like you said, the queen's to the queen. She can't get rid of the queen yeah. because the queen is the only reason she's there. Yeah. And the more I'll say off the off an axis the queen gets, the harder it's going to be for Abigail. Yeah, and. Uh, and no matter what level of power she's at, she's always under the queen. So she's just in this weird, trapped 
yeah. moment, much like all of the bunnies that that randomly can be let out of their cages from time to time. And it's it's an extraordinary reflection of things that I said in the script earlier on. So uh, Abigail, when she's kind of when she gets married, realizes that she you know she says. Something along the lines of, my life is a series of mazes. Every time I think I've gotten free, I walk into a new corner. Yep. And that is true of what that ending of the film is. And then the other thing that, that I think is extraordinary is that, you know, Abigail uh, says to, to Sarah at one point, you know, well, I guess this is that. Uh, I've won. And, you know, like, you'll be, you know, because this is the point at which Sarah is going to be banished from the kingdom. And, and Sarah says, you and I, you don't realize this, but you and I are playing entirely different games. And, and you know, although Sarah is banished, she's kind of, in a way, free of the queen. Um, and, you know, interestingly, from a historical point of view, again, coming to that question of historical accuracy and inaccuracies, um, there's two, two or three things that we should note here. One is that it is hotly debated whether Sarah and Queen Anne were ever in a sexual relationship. Right. There's, there is uh, allusion to it because of um, a poem that was written. Um, and, but, uh, but most historians around the period agree that it is very unlikely that Queen Anne would be in a sexual relationship with Sarah, A, because of uh, her, her illness, uh, having 17 miscarriages, and also, um, and also because she was quite a devout Christian who would find uh, 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 same-sex relationships somewhat, somewhat difficult to swallow. Oh, my God. I, well, I mean, no one in religion is hypocritical. <laughs> so, so it, but I love that the film, like, again just embraces this idea, you know, like basically six six is power in this relationship yeah. and and embraces that as like a way to to shortcut ourselves. It's a shorthand the, to to power stroke. Yeah. Yeah. And it's and it's kind of an ingenious one. Um, same with uh, rabbits. Uh, mm -hmm. the, their, uh, rabbits were mo were not uh, likely kept as pets. Queen Anne did not keep rabbits. But the film kind of invents this visual metaphor, which it then uses really beautifully at the end of the film. Yeah. So I think, you know, like, w why this film works is this kind of incredible interplay between the visualization of the film and the screenplay, which is, you know, the screenplay, we, we are... I don't know if you do this thing now. When I'm watching a movie, I'm trying to pick the line that I'm going to say at the start of the podcast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's really annoying because I'm like, oh, that was, you know, like I'm trying to remember that line as the movie's going along. I don't want to stop to write it down. Like there was yeah. a bunch that I liked better than the one I chose. And yeah. I was like, I'm going to remember this. Remember, remember it. And then yeah. the movie's so good that you just don't remember it. And it's just, it's just this annoying thing that we have now. But I, this, this film was full of such great zingers. Quotables. Yeah. It's just such a quotable movie. Uh, so and so effortlessly made, you know, like like I think the thing you said at the at the beginning it was effortlessly, uh, period. The 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 costume design in this, oh, yeah. the house that they were that they filmed in. I was reading about the behind the scenes where, because this is a heritage home yeah. that cannot be damaged, but they but uh, Yargos wanted to film or Yorgos wanted to film in like natural light, kind of a la Stanley Kubrick yep. and Barry Lyndon. Um, which meant that they had to, the art department had to have like wax handlers because they would have candles everywhere and those, the candle wax could not hit the floor because it's a heritage home. So they were like running around trying to like light the movie with natural lighting. That tacked a couple mil on there, I'm sure. It's a very cheap movie to make. That's the, that's the other thing about this movie. I was like, this is such, it, it seems so grand and opulent. Was it 15 mil? 15 mil. That's, I mean, that's a tiny budget. But their entire budget, honestly, is costumes, location, and safety things. I mean, and, that's really what it is, right? And it's a talky film. Like, yeah. you know, like there's a film of, you know, like. You had some horse parts. <laughs> some horse, some, just some gentle horse play. Yes. Yeah, some, 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 <laughs> uh, just like I, I was thinking of when Sarah goes off for her rides. And they're sure, going, like, yeah, anytime some, you do that, you add some cost, but nothing like. Nothing extraordinary. And I, that's what I love about this film is it's, it's, relatively speaking, it's a small movie. 
um, but it feels so grand, so opulent, and it's all on the strength of the screenplay. Yeah, yeah. this is a yeah. this is a wonderful screenplay um, by Deborah. Uh, ooh, I lost Deborah Davis. De- Deborah Davis and Tony McNamara. And read again. Like you should find it. Deborah. This is the only screenplay Deborah Davis has ever written, uh, and she wrote it in 1998, and it's taken this long for it to come to the screen, um, which I think is an extraordinary testament. Tony McNamara was brought in when Yagos Lanthimos came in. This is also the first film that Yagos Lanthimos has written without his usual um, writer, Ethimus um, Filippou. Um, it's it, but but it. It's really strange to me, and I guess it's telling that a filmmaker as talented but as abstract and kind of weird as Yagos Lanthimos is now kind of entering into the mainstream into mainstream world. I mean, I, I think it's a it's a really sort of a, a best of both worlds type thing because there's definitely underlying strangeness in oh, this yeah, it's film. An odd, it's an odd it's, tale, and it's not as blatant as say the Lobster, of course. Yeah. Um, but I think that's good because mm. look, if for the people that want the, I'll just say the lobster, right, or things like the lobster, that's always going to be there, and he's, I'm sure he's going to make things like that again. I hope so. Um, and but then I think it's great when when a director can kind of, um, you know, be- get, get take take some perspective of of the entirety of, of of filmmaking and be like, you know what, maybe I'll tell this tale might when when your uh, this is a weird statement, but when your oddness doesn't have to be your calling card, right. He, he's taking now. He's taking what makes his oddness special and his style, and putting it into something which we've both sort of considered a little more mainstream. But he's not like, well, this is just me. Mm-hmm. Like to be, he's not being. So far, it seems, and I don't think he's ever done it in his film. He's never being odd just to be odd. This particular story he wanted to tell asked for a certain brand of filmmaking and storytelling, and he did that, and he yeah. wanted to do that. So that's great. I like it. Does that does that make you reverse what you said about the lobster ending? No, 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 no. Because I think the thing, the the dis, I don't want to open that uh, that uh, conversation. But the disagreement we had is that you felt that he didn't choose to make an ending. I still feel he didn't choose to make an ending. I mean, it, and, and but it, but watching this now, we we're so in control. Do you now think that that was the ending he wanted for the lobster? Not, I, I I don't think he had a decision. I think he just was because my point. I think with the lobster was you can dislike the ending. Yeah. But I, but and and I actually don't even love that ending. But it, but it's very clearly made by someone who wanted that to be the end. Like I, I can't, I can't reconcile that being like, oh, I just stopped making. Again, a movie. without getting too deep into it, without me having watched it again, because I haven't watched the Lobster yeah. in, in years at yeah. this point. Uh, I still don't think that. Uh, I, I still remember the feeling I got of just sort of yeah. like, oh my god, this could go so many different directions. End it. Right. Like. Right. No. And 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 I'm again. I don't want to open the Lobster, but I'm. But I guess what I'm saying is, <laughs> do you want to crack that open? I, is what I'm saying is is that. You know, like seeing that this is a filmmaker in control who knows what they're doing, who who clearly has a command of storytelling and visual acuity and and understands what how the things they do will affect. I see people. what you're saying. Do you think that that no. you know changes your no? Opinion because of this it? this film did that yeah. for me, and yeah. his last one didn't. Okay, uh, it's again. That's okay. just how you know. Yeah, I, that's not to say that I don't think he ever had it in him, even during the lobster. It was just that particular time gave me that feeling. Okay. Anyway. I mean, yeah, go see the favorite. <laughs> Shahir, is that about? Is it, I mean, how favorite is it of yours of the films we've seen so far this year? As we're getting, we're wrapping oh, up. Um, as we're thinking about, you know, like I know we we haven't come to those. That's going to be interesting. It, it could be on the lower end. I really, I really enjoyed this. It was, mm. it was something that um, I knew I, I had a feeling I'd like, but not that I'd love, and I, I really did love it. I think um, I, I'm hoping that more and more people go to see. I was actually happy to see because when did it get released? Uh, November this year. Yeah, so it was still playing. 
uh, a decent amount of showtimes in a lot of different theaters, and yeah. I, I like that. Like that, this seems like a movie that would be like great, but kind of like that flash in the pan and just sort of out of theaters when they need like nine screens for Aquaman or whatever. Um, um, a lot of Oscar buzz around this movie. That's so, good. So that's I, good. I think uh, I think this is a film that will play into the Oscar crowd quite uh, quite well. Yeah. Um, so uh, I really enjoyed this film. I think everyone should absolutely go see it. But I also I you know I think this is the not necessarily the mainstreaming of of Yagos Lanthimos's career. Like I don't think he's purposely trying no. to make a mainstream film. I just think he's found a story that happens to appeal to more people than his other films were. But if he wants to direct Squirrel Girl, I mean he he could do it. <laughs> that well, I don't think you want him to direct Squirrel Girl. I, I don't think you want him to direct a Marvel movie. Why not? Because I don't think he will make the kind of Marvel movie you want. Fuck it. <laughs> I, I'm all about the different. I, I love it when they take when they when they do different things with it. That's the that's the that's the goal. Right. Because you're going to run out. I mean, look, you can only do so many things. And again, let's not get into the Marvel thing. Yeah. <laughs> uh, let's just move on. This has been the only podcast about the film The Favorite with a U. Which is the correct, the Queen's English. The Queen's English. Shahir, when you are not peeking around the gilded curtain into the aristocracy's own private boudoir... Where can folks find you? Uh, you can find me at my website, www.shahirdowd.com. That's spelled D. I was gonna, I was trying to make a U joke and I got, and I got distracted. I but liked it's in, it. It's it's spelled S H A. I can't spell my own name. What the <laughs> fuck is going on? No, but you did. You were spelling. That was correct. I know, but I, I just, I get my brain was trying to jump ahead <laughs> to the joke, and I, and I was like, I got it lost. It happens to the best of I us. I lost on the simplest thing. Uh, Shahir Dowd, S <laughs> H A H I R D A. U D. That's go. what I was trying to get to. Dot com. Matt, when you are not uh, speaking in the heathen tongue of the American English, where the favorite is spelt without a U, without a U, without a new, without a U, uh, where can people find you? Where can people find you? Yeah. In in the words you just said, but also at my website m a t t h e w k r o l dot com for my life and works. Also, Skeletor the number four P R E Z on Instagram or Emperor M S K on Twitter. Also, come check out extra credits. We are on break right now, but we got plenty of really cool stuff. Actually, our second episode of the Sunyat Sen series, speaking of extra history, yeah. uh, was trending across the holidays at, between I think number four and number eight on YouTube for a while. Yeah. I don't know why. I mean, I, I actually have an idea why. <laughs> I think it's an excellent series written by Robert. Wrath, um, but also uh, Sun Yat-sen is a, a incredibly uh, prominent Chinese political figure, right. and I don't know if that audience is uh, represented a lot in sort of American-made historical um, content. So if you're if you're interested in that period of time, uh, please go check out um, the first two episodes of that, and we return, I believe, um, not this coming week. This podcast will be being released, but the following with uh, the the other three episodes. It's his his story is fascinating. I'm actually going to look up films. And actually, I'm going to talk to Rob and see if if there's any sort of really well done Sun Yat Sen hmm. st uh, stories, like uh, narrative stories, hmm. because it's fascinating. Yeah. It's it's insane how he changed the face of China and how he. F you want to talk about power plays or flip flops or like where you are in your current uh, which cage you're in? This yeah. man is it's insane. So anyway, um, we're uh, also we're coming up to the end of the year now. So uh, please start giving us your top ten oh, list yes, if please. you are if you are uh, thinking about that. We will have a top ten uh, coming up. Uh, probably, you know, definitely in the new year at this stage because this episode is re being released uh, prior to the end of 2019. Something also I'd like to try too, if if if, if the listeners are interested, mm -hmm. um, is if you want to 
sort of, uh, it, this plays into the term of favorite. Uh, if you want to send us maybe a 30-second reason of, of, of why your favorite film is your favorite film, if we get enough of them, maybe we could integrate that into the episodes, depending okay. on how we, uh, this is an idea I literally just came up with now. I'm sorry, I'm just throwing it on the table. But uh, I, I love hearing from from all you. Obviously, we both do email style too. But if you're comfortable with the microphone and you can record 30 seconds of audio that doesn't sound uh, bad, then I'd love to throw your opinions on uh, what your favorite films of 2018 were. Your iPhone or Android phone will be sufficient. Oh, 100%. Do not worry about it. Just don't do it on the highway. Or if you are doing it on the highway, don't do it while driving, but call out where you are and why the noises sound like you are on a highway. You can send us to OnlyMoviePodcast at gmail.com or hit us up on Twitter at OnlyMoviePod. Happy New Year, everybody. Happy New Year. Oh, because this comes out on... New Year's Eve. That's right. Wow. That's, that's what, we should have opened That's what I was that. talking about. Oh, wow. <laughs> I guess I got so lost in all the U's. Yeah. There's, a, there's no I and you. These two U's. <laughs> there's no I and I-O-U. I-O-U. No I just made a cousin video. We'll see. Well, you'll hear us next week. Bye. Bye. <laughs>